This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Tom Izzo, the Michigan State men's basketball coach, has been with the Spartans for over three decades, winning one national championship and making it to eight Final Fours. We spent a couple days with the Hall of Famer in East Lansing, where we discussed everything from his climb to the top of the coaching world. I feel bad for the guys that just come up and then all of a sudden the real world hits, because this is Disney World now. What it's like to play for him. If you're not mentally tough, you're going to get swallowed. And his unforgettable day with Muhammad Ali. And then all of a sudden the shuffle started. Izzo also opens up about the scandal that cast a dark cloud over MSU's athletic department. That human being deserved worse than he's already got. And shares his family's memorable adoption story involving Nick Saban. I said, tell Nick I'm talking to the governor, you know, he's not that important. (laughs) But we get started with the story of how Izzo met his wife, Loopy. I actually wanted to start off by talking about your wife. I wanted to take you to way back when your paths had crossed at a party. I guess she ended up because of something you said yeah, wasn't, wasn't I, having any of your uh, game. I, I think I had had another girlfriend, you know, or something. And uh, girls don't like that, you know. <laughs> so it, uh, but I was back in the single days and uh, everything was good. And it, uh, yeah, there was a lot of things that I, some I try to forget, to be honest with you, Graham. He kept coming around and he just would say hi to me. That's Izzo's wife, Loopy. And a girlfriend that was there asked me, she says, you know that guy that comes around and says hi to you? I said, no. He says, well, this is, you're in his house. His name is Tom Izzo. And I just want to tell you that he's got a girlfriend here. I go, oh, okay. And so the night went on. I was going to grab a few cookies off the table just on my way out on my drive home. And he comes up and he says, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just going to grab a few cookies on my way out. He said, well, it's going to cost you. (laughs) And I just dropped them, and I walked out. (laughs) That's the very first time I met Tom. (laughs) How did you guys next connect? He called me one time, and I said, I heard you had a girlfriend. He goes, well, yeah, there is someone I'm seeing. I said, okay. I said, why don't you call me sometime when you don't have a girlfriend? And I just left it at that. And, and and click. I hung up on him, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like literally hung up. I did. <laughs> I uh, asked her out and she said no. You know, and so just added to the list of no's over my career. And uh, and then I went up to northern Michigan to speak at a, a clinic and I walked around a truck and there was a board hanging out. And it hit me right here and put a big gash. I saw him at a concert, and he had a big black eye. And I said, hey, what's hap- what happened to you? He says, what? I ran into a two-by-four. I said, what? I think she felt bad for me. So then I was a little bit, uh, you know, okay, never really went out with her. And then... Uh, it was the week of the Purdue game, championship uh-huh. game. It was us and Purdue playing for the Big Ten championship. And uh, I told my secretary, I said, hey, here's two tickets. It was the hottest ticket in town. Give them to your sister-in-law. Tell her to bring her boyfriend. So she said, Lupe, you got to come. He, he really is a nice guy. Just give him a chance. And my mom, she got my mom involved. And my mom said, just, just give him a chance. And I said, 
okay, I'll go to the game. Wait, she got your mom involved? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So I, uh, I went to the game and I did bring a date. I, I brought my eight-year-old nephew at the time. And I got into my seat and I noticed that um, he looked up and he saw me with Dylan. She brought my secretary's son who was seven or eight or something. And, and then every year now she sits in the same exact seats in the last game of the year with him who's now 40. Started out a little rocky, a little banged up, ended up okay. Your wife's mom and dad were born in Mexico, immigrated to the, they came to the U.S. as uh, kids. Your great-grandfather immigrated from Italy, Italy. Uh, to the, the states, Iron Mountain in the late 1800s. Uh, what happened uh, with the railroad in the mine? Well, that was my great-grandfather, right. yes. My great-grandfather, you know, that's what they did up there. It was mining and railroads. And, uh, you know, I don't even know the whole story, but yeah. he was killed in a tragic accident that way. My grandfather then started his own business and uh, that my dad took over and that's where uh, all the grandkids worked. I think there were 17 or 18 of us at Tony Izzo and Sons and grandsons as it uh, went on. But uh, it was a shoe repair shop. They called it the shoe hospital. So if you need uh, new soles, I can fix them for you. Can you still do it? Sure. Okay. You need the equipment, but yeah. I can still do it. But um, then it became a jack of all trades. My uncle took over one part and he was in um, laying carpeting in that. So I've done that in one or two of my houses. And, uh, and then my father took on the siding and windows. So it was kind of a home repair, but the main business was a shoe repair shop that all the grandkids uh, started out in that, uh, you know, working at the desk, then working, fixing shoes. I could put a zipper in a coat. I could do some of those things back in the day. And what, what do you recall from like the, those days when you were working in the shops? You know what I recall? We worry about now everything, you know, don't touch this, don't do that. I, I, I'll never forget my grandfather. You know, it was a farming community up there. and He would take his knife and cut the sole off a shoe, you know, and then take his apple and cut the apple and eat the apple, you know. He lived to be 90, happy as hell. So I think uh, I learned something from that. You know, we're so paranoid now about everything we do. Uh, that was the way to live back then. What do you remember from when your dad offered you the, the company before yeah. you left for Michigan State? Yeah, my mom wasn't real pleased. You know, I got my degree in education and uh, she wanted me to be a teacher. Uh, my father wanted me to take over the company business, uh, which I had a couple of my cousins do on their side. And mm -hmm. I just, uh, you know, I, I graduated from college and uh, I went and interviewed for a teaching job in Hayward, Wisconsin. So I go up there and I interview and I'm riding back and I call Mariucci and I said, I can't do this. I'm 22 years old and I'm expected to maybe teach in high school, kids that are 16, 17, you know, it just didn't add up to me. So like all of us, um, you don't know what you're gonna do. I think it's, I tell my players to this day, I think it's one of the hardest times in your life because you got your degree, now what do I really wanna do? And, uh, since I didn't know, went back to work on my master's and, uh, and became a GA there. What do you think you learned from your mom? My mom was awesome. She was a 4.0 student. She was a nurse. She's 96 years old and still alive. And, and you moved her to Appleton? Appleton. My okay. sister uh, lived in Appleton and 
kind of wished I would have moved them here because they love basketball, they love football, they love sports, but I think there's always a comfort level being with the daughter. And so I moved them about a block, two blocks from my sister. And, and that was about 15 years ago. My dad died about six years ago. I've been told to ask you to teach me some words in panese. Eupanese. Eupanese. You're close. A is a big one. You know, we're like almost Canadian. It's a lot of A's. I still have my accent, but after 30 some years, I've lost part of it. You know, you got to know what a pasty is. Um, someday I'll take you up there and tell you what a pasty is. We laugh at Tom a lot of times because he'll come up with a word. And we, it, I said, Tom, that's not a word, you know, and, and he'll come up with phrases or things that he says. He's very proud of his UP roots. And sometimes he'll just come up with some random words or phrases and we just, you know, we just think it's funny. I've been told you haven't lost that much of it, though. Probably true, you know. I, I feel I have, but I guess when I talk to people who I love, I had a, I recruited a kid from Toronto that was on our championship team, and then I ended up hiring him for a while. And it was good to have him around because uh, the A's and A's were, were real good. You know, we both spoke a little uh, Canadian or Upanese, either way you want to look at it. So in terms of Mariucci, how much did the following moment kind of help in cementing your guys' friendship? It was uh, March of 72, regional title game in Marquette, and you trailed by one point with two seconds left. Yeah, and I get fouled, and I had a, I will say, he probably didn't tell you this, but I had a great game, you know, better than him. And uh, He said that rarely happened, though. Yeah, (laughs) sounds like mooch. But I... uh, you know, I got fouled, went to the free throw line, one and one free throw with two seconds left, just what he said, and uh, I missed it. And, you know, it was funny because kind of crumbled and he's the guy that picked me up. I mean, we already had a tight friendship, but uh, then the bond was one that uh, we helped each other through his walk-on days at Northern, my walk-on days. We were roommates forever, four in school and one as a GA and two as full-time assistants. Then he went to Kel Fullerton. Another year or two, I went to Michigan State. And, uh, you know, we've been so far apart, and yet uh, we're best men at each other's wedding. By the way, tell about your uh, best man speech. <laughs> I was excited. I was playing fast-pitch softball, and the ball came up, hit me in the jaw, broke my jaw. So then the doctor didn't want me going because when you're wired... If you fly and you get sick, <laughs> you die, you know, you uh, you can't do it. So I said, no, there'll be none of that. So I had a pair of wire cutters that they <laughs> gave me, seriously, and I had to talk to the, uh, the attendant at the time and just in case something happened. So I did my, my uh, best man speech kind of by Braille. You know, I kind of learned a couple things and uh, and I had a sidekick kind of translate. I was going to say, have you seen the video of it? You know, I did once. It was not good, but uh, it was a hell of an experience. I believe it was a $2,500 trailer that turned into a a little business where you guys kept upgrading and upgrading and upgrading into eventually a, a house. Explain that. Well, the last year of our, we were playing, we took our scholarship money and bought this trailer for $2,500. And, uh, we had bunk beds in the back, and then we had one other room that we bunked, so we were slumlords, you know. We kind of 
uh, got two other athletes to illumine that thing. And the heat would go off so often that Mariucci bought a hairdryer and uh, he'd hang it on the bed when the heat go off, he'd turn the hairdryer <laughs> under the covers. I mean, it sounds so barbaric, but unfortunately it was true. There'd be, what, half a dozen plus people sleeping in the, uh, the trailer? It, it, I think the most we had was five because his sister moved in with us. So we triple bunked our room <laughs> at one time. And, you know, a lot of people would stay. They'd come up and stay for a game or something. But yeah, we moved from that trailer across the street. That one was 12 by 60. We went to a 14 by 72. And then we went hog wild the third year. We were GAs, had a little bit more money. And we bought the uh, double wide that they put together, which was the office and uh, still kept our bunk beds. Then we got to do two or three rooms we got to uh, rent out. So we were really making money. And then finally we moved into a duplex and that's the last. So every year we moved on up and we're like the Jefferson. And then you renovated the duplex. Oh yeah. Well, we, we bought one other house. I mean, you did it yourself. Yeah. I was brought up kind of building things and that, but all he did was hand me the nail, hand me the hammer. But, uh, Man, we used to work all day. You know, we were GAs. Then I took a little high school job about 15 miles away. We'd come back. We took night classes four days a week for our masters. That would go from like six to nine or something. And then we'd go work on this house we were fixing up till two, three in the morning. And we took a couple sleeping bags. This sounds so ridiculous. Now I'm embarrassed, but two sleeping bags. We just sleep on the living room floor because we didn't have any beds in there then. And you know, we were cutting paneling and so sawdust would be, we wake up in the morning, you know, sawdust and then back to teaching class. Uh, how did it end up looking when you guys were finished? You know, not bad, okay. not bad. It, it was a, a pretty good place. It was four bedrooms. So we collected a lot of rent, yeah. still had bunk beds. So every year, but the very last year, uh, we finally had our own rooms, you know, so. I assumed you guys had grand ambitions from the beginning, and he was telling me that actually, no, you guys wanted to be teachers and coaches, uh, much like these high school coaches who, outside of your parents, you guys really looked up to. Yeah. I, I, explain that. We had some incredible high school teachers and coaches. In fact, to this day, once a year, I host a party here. They come down, 60 of my former coaches and teachers, and now some of them have actually passed away, but some of them had a lot to do with our success. When you hear the phrase, you, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, we had a hell of a village. Now, you couldn't get in much trouble there because wherever you lived, there's a good chance the principal lived on one side, the superintendent on the other, the football coach behind you and the chief of police in front of you. So if I got in trouble, my parents knew before I got in trouble. So you guys thought you were going to be teachers and coaches. You guys, I think, learned driver's ed, expecting to oh, yeah. uh, teach that. But when did that ambition start to change? We did take driver ed just to try to make a little more money. And that was interesting. A couple of classes. Still got my certificate. If you can't drive, I'll teach you. But uh, we were GAs and we said, man, this coaching thing could be good at the college level. And um, and it just happened as fate would have it happened. That next year, you only had one assistant in basketball and only four, I think, in football in Division II schools. The guy left Northern in basketball. Glenn Brown hired me. The guy left in football. I hired Mary G as a quarterback coach. 
And so we were 23 or so, and we both had full-time assistants making less than part-time money. So where does uh, jackhammering rock and picketing with the Tilden miners fall in there? Yeah, geez, bringing up a lot of things there. So we figured our junior year of college, we had to get, make some money, you know. It's hard to get a date with no money. And we had none. Pizzas were running out. So uh, we had a guy from our mount was the uh, union boss of uh, a couple of the big unions that worked at the mines. So we kind of snuck in the back door, which caused some problems because people didn't appreciate that. Uh, back then, I didn't understand it all. I'll never forget one of the, my two favorite things was, you know, they gave us the big 90 pound jackhammer. And so one day we get to there and they said, well, you guys got to chisel this rock down. I swear to God to this day, I don't think it was for any reason. I think it was punishment <laughs> and we weren't very skilled at it. And then they'd come by and call us everything in the book. And there was no, um, I don't think there were any HR departments then, you know, they called you whatever they wanted and did whatever they wanted. And then, uh, one day, uh, the iron workers weren't real happy either. So, so we're, we're there and uh, put our coats down in our lunch bucket, come back at noon, and I grab my coat and I put it up and there are all kinds of holes in it. And the iron workers were welding up there and I look up and they're all laughing. <laughs> Those guys were crazy, you know? So Mary and I had a good experience in that. You know what that taught us? What? Get your degree and, and uh, maybe be a coach. So you end up coaching high school for a, a year. year yeah. uh, you're then assistant coach Northern Michigan for a few years. This is the early 1980s. And for whatever reason, you always found a way those few years over to East Lansing. Yeah. And I came down to Michigan State when Magic was, uh, I think it was his first year, it was 78. Yeah. And... Uh, I watched practice and I just said, wow, Jed Heathcote was, I mean, he got after Irvin. I mean, he got after everybody. And so I said, someday I'd like to work for that guy, you know? And it, when you started going down consistently, were you just trying to put in FaceTime to create an opportunity for I yourself? I was, but I was also trying to learn. And I was, you know, I mean, that dream was so far-fetched. And so then a year later, a job opened here. So I just applied for it and I didn't get anywhere. The next year it opened, a different one opened here and I applied again and uh, didn't get anywhere. And on the third year is the year of Mary Chi's wedding that I broke my jaw and I was gonna interview with Judd. So I interviewed with Judd with a broken jaw. <laughs> and to the day he left here, He'd always come in and say, oh, yeah, you want the job, huh? You know, and <laughs> Judd made so much fun of me because he was such a great guy. And uh, why do you think you got it that year? Well, I didn't. When I had the broken jaw and I said, uh, he said, you're just not qualified enough. You haven't had enough recruiting experience. And there was a GA job open. I said, what about the GA job? He said, well, you're overqualified for the GA job. I said, well, that's my problem. Give me a chance. You remember what you were making? Oh, yeah, I was making $4,500 a year. And I was 20, I think six, five or six. And I was in a bunk bed with a three-year-old on the bottom and me on the top. And uh, I lived that way for over a year. So that's how my career started here. And I was a GA 
and GA's last two years. But I couldn't find a job, and so Judd kept me for the third year. So I, I think I was the only three-time GA in the history of Michigan State, but maybe in college sports because it's a two-year program. At the end of that, I was out of money. Um, my mom kept asking me when I'm going to get married at 29, and I kept asking her, when are you going to find me a woman that will marry me making $4,500 a year? <laughs> she didn't come up with a good answer. I wasn't married. And uh, I was about to go back and take the head job at Michigan Tech University. The last day we were negotiating over video equipment. And I said, well, I'll tell you tomorrow. And my assistant, the assistant here, good friend, was a guy named Kevin O'Neill, ended up in the pros. He ended up coach at Toronto. He was at the University of Tulsa as an assistant. He was going to Arizona, called Mike, because they were friends, and said, there's a job open here. So he helped me get that job. So I went to the University of Tulsa for uh, six weeks. I was going to say not that long. Either. No, no, yeah. I didn't even, not even a cup of coffee. And uh, I'm sure they were thrilled. Uh, yeah, that guy was not real happy with me because he had lost some assistance. And we went through a treacherous time during that period. And I remember calling Mariucci because the guy wanted to kill me, you know. And I said, what should I do? Because well, just sitting there and talk to him while he came in the office, I tried to talk to him. I didn't go over big, but Michigan State was my home, you know, back in my home. I thought he'd understand that. He didn't. <laughs> but, it, but so a couple slammed the doors in my face, and I understood it, to be very honest with you. But I was going back home with the chance for to be the recruiting coordinator at Dream. That was when Dream started big. What do you have to say to? people when it comes to, you know, pursuing your dreams and the yeah, fact that you it, know, it's you know, really hard. It doesn't it, happen overnight. It's really hard. And uh, our, our society to me is so screwed up and everybody's so entitled. The process is where the biggest lessons are learned. And so many people are skipping the process. And, you know, people say, well, that's old school. And I would say, no, that's right school. I don't uh, begrudge anybody that can get there on a faster track, but I'll never, ever give up the GA days, the Division II days. I mean, I think the working in my dad's shop from when I was 12, I think those things helped me. Um, so I, I feel bad for the guys that just come up and then all of a sudden the real world hits, because this is Disney World now college sports right now, it's kind of Disneyland, you know? I mean, you're flying on private planes, you eat what you want, you live where you want, you, now you're getting paid. I mean, there's, it's Disneyland. I wasn't Disneyland back then. And, uh, but the real world that they're about to enter in one, two or three years, isn't Disneyland. Right. And that's where I think we're doing them an injustice by not learning how to navigate the process and enjoy the journey. How about your most emotional loss over the years? Wow, my most emotional loss? I mean, I, <laughs> I've had a lot of them, but... Uh, You've been known to shed a tear. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm an, I'm, I'm an Italian guy where my emotions on my sleeve, sometimes good and sometimes bad. But uh, sometimes those officials can't take a joke. What can I say about it? You know, it's just the way it is. But I think the worst one for me was, uh, I want to say it was 2015. 
when uh, I had a kid named Denzel Valentine. We had a really, really good team. We were, we should have been a one seed. We ended up a two seed. Middle Tennessee should have been about a 12 seed. They ended up a 15 seed. And that team shot 56% against us from the field and 53 from the three. And we shot in the 50s and lost. And I've had about three or four that I really thought were final four teams. But that one was one, and it was with a group of guys. I'd known Denzel. I recruited his dad out at the Matha High School when I was a GA. I watched him win three state championships here in high school. He came here, and I watched him grow as a person and as a player. And um, I have a saying, do you like the game? Do you love the game, or do you live the game? It's the three L's, and he lived it. And we were out in the first round, and uh, that was hard to stomach. It really was. It, it still gets to you. You can tell. Yeah, what? it does because I, uh, I think you have. We we've gone to a final four as a seven seed, so I think every year we have a chance. But um, when you lose as a one or two seed, um, and you had the type of guys I had, you know, like some teams. I mean, you you like them all, you love some of them, but there's some that are special. He was special, but we were a two and we ran into a, a team that was very well coached and very good. And, I, and you know, in all the media, well, you look past them. No, that, that wasn't the case. That's the difference with football and basketball to me. I tell Mary Jo all the time. Not many upsets happen in football. Usually the bigger, stronger, better team wins over the 60 minutes. In basketball, we have two outliers, the three-point shot and the officials. And, and I say that not negatively about the officials, but if your star player gets in foul trouble or something, it can change the game. So those two factors and this game, neither one of those were factors. Team just played better than us. You said it gets to you that you haven't won a second championship. Why? Well, we've been back to six Final Fours, you know, and uh, you, you kind of feel like... Um, why can't we get over the hump, you know? And there's been good reasons. There's, in fact, there's been three Final Fours we didn't get to that I thought we were as good or better than some of the teams there. But um, you get selfish too, you know, like the day that we played Temple to go to a Final Four in 2001, um, John Cheney, one of my favorite guys, we won the game and I had to go down and shake his hand and I, kind of felt like he was America's team. Everybody was pulling for him. I felt like the guy that shot Bambi. You know, I, I was like, God, I was apologizing for winning because I had so much respect for him. But at the same time, why we can't win that second one, you know? And uh, so I've got to figure out what I'm doing wrong. In his career, um, it's harder to stay on top than to get to that top. It's harder to, to maintain. And I think that you know, he's fighting for another championship. You know, he, he, he wants that, not so much for himself as for the program and for all the guys that are part of it. You know, your first one came so early in your yeah. head coaching career and you're an infinitely better coach now and had so much more success since then that it's like interesting how that works. Well, you've heard the old adage, you know, players play the game. But I think the difference is I had an incredible leader in Mateen Cleaves. I mean, he was our version of Magic Johnson. Oh, we had a great relationship. That's Izzo's former player, Mateen Cleaves. And uh, I mean, you had two guys that was willing to do whatever it took to win by any means. 
Because back in 1996, nobody thought it was possible to win a national championship here at Michigan State. Um, so we had a very good bond, and he would push me. Um, I think we, we, we helped each other grow uh, and become better at what we both did. We didn't care about who got credit. The whole thing was win, you know, and I, and I think that's what helped us out a lot. And I've had some good ones, Draymond Green and Denzel and, and some other guys that have been very good leaders. I like people that, I used to say drag people with them, but then that sounds like they're forcing them. So we've come up with a term that gather people. Who can gather people and make them better than they really are? That's what a great leader does. So a player-coach team is always better than a coach-coach team. When you got a real good leader, you have a real shot. Take me through what you recall from going to Muhammad Ali's house with your team after winning the national championship. Awesome. This was awesome. You know, I, I'm glad you brought it up. I forget about some of the cool things I got to do. I'm so caught up in the problems of today. But I go to a football game. My wife and I and another couple, and I called Nick Saban. Nick was here same time I was here, and I said, can you get me a parking pass? He goes, yeah. So he gets me a parking pass, and I pull in, and I'm right by the stadium, and I pull up to this van's in front of me. This big, tall, white guy gets out of the van and looked like a player, and I'm thinking, hmm, you know, where's your son, you know? Right. And uh, he looks at me, and he says, uh, you Tom Izzo? And I said, yeah. And he says, how would you like to meet Muhammad Ali? And I said, yeah. I won't say exact words. How would you like to meet the frickin' president, you know? Because right. I thought he was being a smart aleck. Right. And uh, he goes, no, come here. And I'm starting to say, wait a second here, this guy's serious. Doors open in the van, and out pops Muhammad Ali. He was good. He was starting with the Parkinson's mm -hmm. then, but he came out. His wife Lonnie was with him. And uh, like, I couldn't even speak. I mean, I, you know, Vince Lombardi was a hero when I was a little kid and some other great players, but Muhammad Ali to me was Muhammad Ali. Right. And I think I was just staring at him, you know, and I'm sure he said, speak, you know, but I, I got to know him and I mean, in that minute, he was going up to the box, I was going to the game. So fast forward a few months and uh, we're gonna play UConn and we get a call from her and she said, Muhammad would like to come to the game. Cause he lived in Berrien Springs part of the time, which is an hour and a half from us. I go, wow, they were ranked fifth. I think we were second or vice versa, big game. And how crazy is that? I mean, Muhammad oh, Ali. How crazy. Right, yeah. And uh, so he said he'd like to bring his son and a couple of buddies. I think he wanted 10 tickets. Well, it was UConn, Michigan State. It was the hottest ticket in town, but if he wanted the whole lower bowl, I was going to work that out. <laughs> right. uh, he was really somebody I idolized. So Van pulls into the uh, tunnel, and sure enough, Muhammad and his wife and his, and his kid and his kid's friends and his couple. And so he's, uh, you know, he kind of tells me that he's got something for me, and it was this signed pair of real gloves that he had used in, in sparring and that. And God, I was like a kid in a candy store. And then he says, you know, you got an alumni thing? And I said, yeah. And, and they said, well, mom, I got some gloves to auction off. I think they went for twelve or 15000 So him and I auctioned off a pair of gloves. I mean, he was the most, he was just what I always believed. He was such a people person. So now he says, he wanted to talk to my team before the game. And I was hoping after the game, you know? So it was before the game. 
And, uh, and I said, if I walk into this room with Muhammad Ali, my, my star, Mateen Cleaves, who was a street fighter himself, he's going to go crazy. And he might, he might take the first shot and hit the ceiling, you know, and I was nervous, right? So he gets in there, he starts doing it jokes. And then he starts doing his levitation stuff. You know, he was very good at it. And I'm sitting there like this and those guys, I mean, they didn't know if we were playing, it didn't matter if we were playing a national championship game, those guys were just homed in on Muhammad. And I'm telling myself, God, I'm gonna speak here. We're gonna be on the floor, you know, I'm getting nervous. How do I tell him, right. oh, man, we gotta go, you know? Right. So I'm really getting nervous. And he says, time running out, coach? Probably could see it. I go, well, yeah, we gotta get going, you know? And he gave a speech for about two minutes about what it's like to be a champion. I swear to God, my guys did not run out. They did not float out. They flew out of that locker room. We were ahead, if you check the score, I think it was 51 to 17 at halftime. And my poor fans thought it was a great pregame speech by me. <laughs> and it was Muhammad. So they introduced him at halftime and he sat up in my wife's box. I said, I got security for you up in my wife's box. I don't want any security. I don't want security. So I found out that it was 51 to 19 or 17. And, and uh, the second half, people were trying to come up to the window and say, you know, and uh, he told the cop, he says, get a table. He sat out there and signed autographs and kind of hard for him at the time. And he signed the autographs the whole second half get a line around the place. And then he said he wanted to come down and lock them after the game. And then he wanted to meet the parents. Took pictures. I mean, he taught me humility. I mean, if that guy could be like he was, it was, oh my God, it was, you can tell, I'm, I'm still choked up about it. You know, then we go on and win the national championship and we get an invite to his house for his son's birthday. So we take the bus and we go down there and supposedly it was El Capone's old house. He had a, it was an old farmhouse. And he had a real nice office and he had a real nice workout place. And he had a ring in there and all of his, you know, massage tables. And then he had all these posters up of some of his greatest fights, you know, Sonny Liston and uh, all those. And I, uh, I just walked around like this. And then he, decided he'd spar with each member of the team <laughs> for a short period of time. And he was, you know, starting to lose some of his stuff. And his wife was so excited. She said, the doctors have been trying to get him to do this. And so the first couple guys, you know, he, he was just sparring a little bit. And then all of a sudden the shuffle started. And she goes, oh, this is awesome, coach. Oh, he did tell me it was an amazing encounter for him. That's former Michigan State and current Alabama football coach Nick Saban. I would love to have have had an experience like that because when people are good for so long, you always appreciate the quality of their work and what sort of made them be who they are. So for Tom to have that experience, I think was very enlightening for him. And he shared that with me, but Made me a little envious because I'd have loved to have the opportunity as well. What about it still touches you? 
that a guy of that stature had the humility to um, just be one of us. You know, he wanted nothing. He just wanted to be a part of it. He took me around. He he showed me his place. Um, it, it really taught me, no matter how big you get, don't forget where you came from. And and uh, to me, he was that guy. So you win the championship. Uh, you're being courted to become uh, head coach of an NBA team in Atlanta. On top of all of that, you and your wife got married late, so started having kids late, and all of a sudden you're uh, adopting. Well, yeah, what happened, we won it. My daughter was five, and it didn't work out after that, so we said, you know, we wanted to uh, uh, adopt a baby. When we won the national championship, we had the parade. And our governor at the time, John Engler, had gone through the same thing. We went through the fertility things and all the things that you go through. And when I was talking to him and I said, you know, we're looking to adopt. He said, you know, we were looking for that too. And he said, I'll, uh, you know, after it all settles down, give me a call someday. A month or two goes by. And I said to my wife one day, uh, I'm going to call the governor and take him up on his offer to see if he can help, you know, because it was very difficult to, to adopt. So I'm talking to him and, uh, He's giving me, he says, get a pen and paper, you know, write this lawyer down in this place in Kansas City. And he was trying to be very helpful and, uh, and I appreciate it. And all of a sudden my secretary comes in and she says, Nick Saban's on the phone. I said, tell him I'll call him back. You know, I'm talking, I didn't tell her I was talking. I said, just tell him I'll call him back in a little bit. She came back and said, Nick says it's important. I said, tell Nick, I'm talking to the governor, you know, he's not that important. <laughs> Then he calls my wife. Nick couldn't wait. He called me. And I was coming down the stairs and picked up the phone. And he said, are you sitting down? I said, sure, yeah, what? And he says, a, a baby boy was just born. Are you interested? And I literally fell on those stairs. I said, yeah, I just sat down. I said, yeah, absolutely. We were on some adoption rosters, I guess. And Bethany in, in uh, Grand Rapids was one and Nick put us on with one that he knew of in Virginia, West Virginia. And so where he was from, she tells me that Nick called and the doctor that, you know, it was a private adoption. And we went through and uh, had called him and, and said they had a little boy and um, we had like two days to decide. So I called the governor back and I so you're not going to believe what just happened. I mean, all this in about an hour. Yeah, well, you know, we had used Dr. Coleman, who is you know, probably an angel from God when it comes to, you know, placing children and helping people. And I told Tommy, I said, you know, this lady's great. You know, she, so I called her and she was more than willing and happy to try to help them. And uh, I guess it worked out great for him. We expedited it all. They had a home study on Sunday and Monday we went down and picked up Stephen. What was that like going down to pick him up. It was kind of scary for me because already there was talk about maybe this was going to happen. And I was frightened that it wasn't going to happen. And so I just said, Tom, let's just go. And we went. It, it touches you even it, thinking about it now? Yeah. What, what is it uh, that's so emotional? <laughs> because I wouldn't know what to do if I didn't have Stephen. Stephen's such a big part of our lives and such a big part of my life. And um, 
we we went down there. I'm not kidding. When I first saw Stephen, he he put his arms out to me, and he was four days old, and he put his arms out. There's just no way that I was ever going to be. He, we were going to be separated anymore after that. You know, everybody wants to have their own, and and we had Raquel, and everything was great. But the 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 cool part of it was, you know, we went down. My wife's Hispanic. I'm Italian. And this guy was an albino. He was hair was white, and and uh, we saw him. And it took about maybe ten seconds, and it didn't feel it was any different than your own. It just took here holding him. That's our child. You know, it was immediately. I think immediately. It was one of the neat things that I'd always tell people. You know, if you go through things, adopt. You know, somebody's waiting for you. And uh, it was great for us. And and he's been absolutely awesome. What do you think you learned going through the, the adoption experience? There's a lot of bureaucracy in, in adoption. And that's the only thing I, to this day, I wish it would change. I understand the reasons. I think there's a lot of good people that would adopt. And, and yet it's a... It's a process, but I also learned the way it was worth it, you know? And uh, at the end, it was it was all worth it. How about the sacrifice that you think your family has had to make because of your career? Well, I think that's what people, they, they, they see the lights and the action and, and, you know, all the things that go with it. There are sacrifices you have to make, but as they say, anything worth having is worth sacrificing for. And, um, you know, we live in a nice house, we have a nice cottage, but the sacrifice that your family makes is you're not around as much and your wife ends up raising your kids. It's been very hard um, not being able to have him around because, you know, he's, you know, doing what he's got to do for not only the program, but the university and um, the players, you know, as they grow, Personally, yeah, I'd like to have them around more. But I also understand that, you know, we'll, we'll, get our, we'll get our time. And we do have our time. Right. But it's not traditional. Summers were always weird. That's Izzo's son, Stephen. Because that's a recruiting period, so the time you get off usually, um, or that we would all have off, it's like his busiest time of the year, right. kind of. I think his senior year, I made like five or six games of his. I went and sat in the corner and you know why I did that? Because I realized all the parents are complaining about the coach. <laughs> so I said, I'm liable to say something because I never complained about the coach. My kid didn't play, I didn't complain, I understood, I knew. Loopy was saying because your son's been on your team that she thought the experience was gonna be most beneficial to him. And in fact, she quickly realized it was Wow, the other a, way around. What a great statement that is. There is definitely the truth that he helped me out. Uh, gave me a different perspective on life that um, everybody comes in a different way. And uh, sometimes that path is a little tougher. And um, you think you're helping him, but the truth of the matter is he probably helped me more than I've helped him. I've raised everybody else's kids. Oh, my wife raised mine because you're gone so much, 
this is my chance to recoup it. What's been the best part of being able to spend like this amount of time to, together over the past few years? Uh, the best part is just the time. It's a blessing and sometimes a curse, but um, overall it's been a blast. And then just like the traveling, just being on a plane or being on a bus with team, that's like the best memories you can have. Every away game we have, we take a picture before pregame, stuff like that. What was it like coaching him? Well, it's been uh, interesting. You know, I have a tendency to say what I want to say, and sometimes um, the letters of words, I keep mine simple and small, you know, like four letters and under. <laughs> and I remember him coming home from one practice when he was probably 10 and said something to my wife, and he learned the rule then that what goes on in practice stays in practice. It's like <laughs> Vegas. Well, then when he joined my team, so the first day, the first rule was what goes on in the locker room stays in the locker because everybody hates their coach. You know, the bad practice. I can only, I can only imagine. You know, it's this is the fourth year he's been here. He has never brought one thing to me, which I'm kind of proud of him. Sometimes though, I'd like to know what you know, right. I'm saying, but I, I never go there, and he never goes there. He's never said a word. It's been awesome, but I can only imagine. Can you imagine? what he's taken at times, you know, somebody sitting there ripping your dad in the locker right next to you. I'm not a narc, I'm not a narc. I probably started the trash talk more oh, in the locker room than anything. Okay, no. give me an example. Uh, just when we have like a bad practice, I'm like the first one to just gaslight everybody. Cause it, I get more mad and then I just like let it loose. And then everyone's like, all right, he's letting loose. Like we'll let loose. I read this somewhere that when you're at home, you'll feel guilty yeah. You aren't working, and when you're working, you yeah. feel guilty you aren't home. I said guilt is the greatest word in my dictionary, my personal dictionary. The word guilt is always there. This happened a while ago. I think uh, one of your friends lost their mom, and you called your friend up to see how he was doing, and uh, he said he was doing fine, and you said, bullshit. And what was it about his response that really struck you? His response actually hurt me. And I said, oh, don't give me that BS. You're not great. You know, it's uh, your mom just died at 7.30 this morning. And and he says, you know what? He said, I took her to church every Sunday. I took her out to eat. Got to the point where his mom didn't know him. He goes, even if she didn't know me, I went there. He said, I have no regrets. And a few years later, my father died. Um, and I, I said to him, I have a lot of regrets. And, you know, then they tried to say, people try to make you feel better. And it's true, you know, I got this job and a couple of years later, I, I did buy my parents a house and I bought them a car and they went to Hawaii and they went to every final four and they got to do things that somebody from Iron Mountain doesn't get to do. And they all said to me, just think what you did for your father and all the memories and all the great things you know, when your mom got to do. And I said, yeah, but when I was at those final fours and he was there, it'd be hello in the morning when I saw him, he's having a cup of coffee and hello at night because I was working all day. So I didn't get to spend the time with him. You know, I didn't get to do that. And I do regret that. And so I'm trying to find a balance because all of a sudden your kids go from five to my daughter's 27 or eight, my son is 22. And you know, they, they grow up quick, as they say. My mother's 96, I try to see her, I don't get to see her enough.
So I hope that the things I was able to do for him makes up for the time I didn't get to spend. Michigan State is still dealing with the fallout from the Larry Nassar scandal. In January 2018, the former sports physician for both the university and USA Gymnastics was sentenced to up to 175 years in prison for sexually assaulting multiple women, including minors. The university paid $500 million to the 332 accusers, and backlash led to the resignation of the president and athletic director. Izzo and others in positions of power also received criticism. You went through a hard time four or five years ago. I'd have to imagine one of the tougher times in your life. And I'm just curious what that period was like for you. Well, I kept saying it was, it was bad. And then I remembered for some of the people involved in it and the survivors and what they had to go through. It was worse for them, of course, but it was such a, a, t a tough period for everyone that, uh, yeah, it, 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 it made you really refocus and think about what is important in life and, uh, and how can you help others that are uh, way worse off than you. I learned a lot of good things. Um, meaning how we have to do a better job taking care of our fellow men and women, human beings. Um, I learned the dark side of things, how people um, attack you in different ways. I, I learned that. Our community took a really hit, a hard hit uh, on that. And uh, the only ones that were standing were Tom and I. You know, we lost our president, we lost our ID. We lost, you know, other different people and some of them needed to go. And a lot of blame was thrown here and there. Um, but because we were the last people here, there was a lot of attacking on him. The issue was that a lot of us were being silenced and we couldn't say anything about it because it was all under investigation. and. And, you know, sometimes you, they'd say, well, if he's not saying something, maybe he's guilty. Those press conferences were brutal. No, they weren't that good. They weren't that good. They were, I look back, they were embarrassing. They were, they were brutal. I'm a guy that always talks. I'm, I'm a guy that I, I don't think ducks many questions. And I was at a point and and our whole place and even our country was at a point where there was just not a right word that could be said, and I didn't say much, and uh, that bothered me. It did, hurt me. Did it? Yeah, oh, a lot, because I I felt like there were there was an evil human being, and I mean evil, and uh, that human being deserved worse than he's already gotten, if, in my humble opinion, and sometimes less said the better. And that's not what I did for my first 60 years of 58 years of life. And uh, so I don't know if I handled it right or handled it wrong because there was no good way to handle it. That was probably the darkest time of my career, you know, wins and losses, you know, those games we talked about earlier that what was your toughest loss? Um, nothing compared to those two, three years. It's interesting you say you don't know whether you handled it right or wrong. Steve Mariucci said it was one of the few times he's ever seen you second-guessing mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, like, your thoughts on that. 
Well, it was right. He was right. Um, and I talked to him a lot, but who could you talk to? You know, and I did one press conference and I, I said a wrong word that to this day, I, I wouldn't even have thought nothing of it. It was like any word I said was going to get attacked. And Larry Nasser, uh, in my humble opinion, um, deserved everything that's happened. And uh, I feel for his family, I feel for people, but those survivors did not deserve that. So I didn't know how to handle it. And I, I was... Um, what was your lowest point throughout the process? The picture on TV of me, D'Antonio, and Larry Nasser. It was probably the lowest point in my, um, not adult life, life, just because um, I knew what I thought of Larry Nasser, and uh, and there I am, like we're all buddies, like the three of us. Those press conferences were, uh, they were attacks, and um, and I thought to this day, those attacks by certain media was uncalled for. I was angry. I was angry at the media. And you're the first person. I don't consider you media, but I've kind of lost respect for a lot of them because they didn't stick up for them. They were against them. Yeah, I used to have them here all the time, have dinners and talk. And Tom was very open and talked to the media. But I think, I think that whole thing kind of scrambled. Everybody's looking for a story and everyone who wanted the top billing. And it, I just saw the ugly part of it. And I had to live with it. And you, correct me if I'm wrong, only met Nasser once. And it was I met like him. In, in, a, in a hospital when you were trying to yeah, like, I, be I, nice. I, and he was here him. 30 years and I was here same time. Yep. Never ever met him. I, I got called, our football team was going to a bowl game and we had a gymnast who was seriously injured. And uh, her parents were coming in from Chicago and they asked me if I would go to the hospital to be the voice of Michigan State Athletics because everybody, when you go to a bowl game, everybody's gone. And I did that. And I don't know, he was making rounds and he came by and I just, it was a high, high. I mean, never had a conversation, never knew him. But I was uh, front and center in that picture that, that, uh, for me, this will go down as something I'll remember for a long, long time. I was talking to uh, Steve Mariucci, obviously his uh, best friend, and uh, Steve was like, I, I thought there was a decent chance he was going to end up being gone too. Mm -hmm. yeah. what, where was your mind at during that time? It's just that it wasn't right, it wasn't true. And, and, and Tom had to prove and he stayed because we wanted to make sure that people know that Michigan State is a wonderful university. It's got a lot of great people. The community is awesome. And we're deeply rooted and we supported us. You said it's harder dealing with the pressure of success than the pressure of failure. In what ways? I say that now, you know, I'm not sure when the score was 51-49, uh, we were behind against Chaminade in my very first game in Maui and Magic Johnson and Judd Heathcote were sitting right behind the bench. I, I still remember sweat pouring down my face or, or 
the time we were at Wisconsin and uh, we hadn't scored yet. There were seven minutes left in the half. And I looked at my assistants. I said, this could be the first time ever. Those were failures that, that seemed so difficult. But what I learned is once you win, expectations change. And I blame the media. I blame our fans. I blame <laughs> everybody for that. And the truth of the matter is, Nobody has higher expectations than me. So mm. it's time to look in a mirror and say, hey, dude, you're the one that set the expectations. Well, and it's because of your success that everybody else develops those expectations. But I fell into that same trap, you yeah. know, where I don't realize there's other programs out there that are really good too. And yet ours happened kind of quick. You know, fourth year, we're in the final four. Third year, we win the Big Ten. Fifth year, we're in another final four. Sixth year, we're in another final four. I hope I can appreciate that sometime instead of looking at it as a burden. Because once you get there, now everybody's pecking at you. You know, so it's the old, are you the hunted or the hunter? I learned early too. This was a great thing I learned early. What is success? So we win the national championship. We get invited to the Wooden Awards, which is the Heisman of basketball. I get to meet John Wood. Wow. I'm so excited. I, I, I sat there and, you know, he said, well, hi, Tom Izzo. I was in this line and I turned to my players. I said, he knows my name. And he said, welcome to the fraternity of 40. I looked at him. Hmm. Thanks. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, what the hell's a fraternity got to do with this? You know, and I walked over to Bill Walton. And I said, uh, hey, Bill, what did he mean by the fraternity of 40? He says, well, I... You're, you're, there's 40 guys that have won a national championship. No, you're one of them. My God, as he was talking, I was growing. Pretty <laughs> soon I was 6'11". I said, wow, and I felt good. <laughs> Turned around and started to walk away, and Bill said, by the way, Tom, John has won 10 of them. I left there three foot six, and I realized that I haven't done nothing yet, and I got a lot of fish to fry. And that helped me, that moment, you know? So the greatest moment of my life, I was humbled immediately. Yep. And I think that taught me something. What's the most difficult part of working for you? I'm never satisfied. I mean, never happy, never satisfied. I mean, I, I, I think that's hard for people, the ones that don't live it. And I think people don't like to be held accountable, um, don't like to be confronted. And I stole something from Nick when I went down there once. He had a sign that said, confront and, and demand. If you just confront somebody on the problem, you've done half the job. If you don't demand, it changes. Sometimes we overlook things rather than saying anything. That's former Michigan State and current Alabama football coach Nick Saban. Because we don't really want to upset the apple cart in any way. But in the long run, if you confront people when they don't do things the right way, and you demand that they do it the right way, it actually creates value for them because they're learning accountability. And uh, it also helps you have a better team because everybody on the team sees that everybody's held to the same standard. So uh, that's just something that I've always sort of thought was important in team dynamics. I know we're gonna embark on a schedule that is off the charts, better schedule than I've ever played. If you're not mentally tough, you're gonna to get 
swallowed. And so I pick different times in practice to actually pick on a player, see how he can handle the mental stress because I know what's coming. And then when I'm done, I'll bring him into my office and say, you got to a, a B, a C, or a D, you know? And if it's a C or a D, we got to figure out how to deal with this. If it's an A or B, you're making good progress. You know, we know he loved us. That's Izzo's former player, Mateen Cleaves. So he, he actually wanted, for a lot of the players, he wanted more for them than they wanted for themselves. And we'll run through a brick wall for him. So, but he would always, he held us highly accountable. But on the back end, we knew he cared about us. So we had his back as well. Magic helped in that, you know? I once asked him if I could be a pro coach. And uh, he said, hell yes. And I said, really? And he said, the great ones want to be disciplined, want to be held accountable. It's the other ones that don't. I use that every day to myself. And then trying to push people when everybody um, has gotten softer, but to do what I'm doing at the level I'm doing it, or to do what those players want to become. They all want to become pros. They just think it's a rite of passage. It's not. Media, people, whatever, hard on Tom, he's so much harder on himself than anybody else could really? be. Really? Yeah. He says, you know, he's he's hired to be fired every single day. That's how he lives his life. You've said uh, you've mellowed uh -huh. over the years. Mm -hmm. What impact do you think that's had? Um, a little bit of negative one. Really? A little bit. A little uh, bit. How so? Well... Because I, too, have to make sure I'm holding everybody accountable. What do you got to do to be successful? Self-evaluate. It's one of the hardest things there is to do. You know, you can always evaluate other people. I mean, unfortunately, the media does it a lot. And I say that with a lot of positives, but those people that weren't in the practice that day, they weren't in the film room that night. How do they know, you know? I don't try to be a brain surgeon, but everybody... You know, I don't tell those doctors what to do, but everybody tells me what to do. Well, so on the media front, you've been criticized before for yelling at players. Yeah. A number of your players actually kind of hold that as a, a badge of honor to be on the end of your wrath. I'm curious the purpose you see that serving. Well, it's, you know, people see the moment. They don't see the build. Right. He, yeah, he got me one game. I wasn't playing so good. And yeah, he took me out the game. And uh, he said, uh, he said, you'll thank me later. He said, because this is national TV and you're stinking it up. You know? <laughs> so. I think I've told every single one of my players, you know, just, you know, don't, don't take how he says things to you. Just really listen to what he's telling you, not how he's telling you. If you think that any blow-ups are over one time, then you haven't been to any of our reunions because no player would come back. They all come back. I would always say my best suit is I spend time with my guys. So if you spend time with somebody and you get to know them inside and out, they get to know you inside and out. I'm Italian, you know, I can't say hello without saying probably some bad word or something, you know, just the way it works. Oh no, I've seen some of those videos. I'm like, man, you gotta worry about your blood pressure. Nah, they just laugh at it. They probably go in the locker room and laugh at me. But I have mellowed in that respect. The bottom line is you have to figure out every person's different and how you hold them accountable. But don't 
as they say, um, judge a book by the cover. You know, there's a lot that goes into it. People didn't see the days when we would go in his office and sit and hang out and talk to him about not nothing about basketball. You know, it gets hard as pure as gold. You know, it's a lot of coaches, man. They 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 have players and they don't they don't genuinely care about them. We know he cared about us. You know, not only did he say it, he showed it. In 2010, you talked about how everybody talks about kids changing, but what they fail to recognize is it's the parents changing too. Uh, in what ways? I have PTA meetings. I have a parent group meeting every Midnight Man has had one this year. And just talk to them about the things. And so I talked to them up front and I ask them, how do you want me to handle your kid if he's, you know, got a problem? And then I say, well, it says on the ticker that John Doe is suspended because he skipped a bunch of classes. How are you going to feel about that? The moms keep their hand up that they want, they want it done. The dads kind of sheepishly bring their hand down because everybody's so worried about image now and this and that. We all went through that. Right. It's just that that, that stuff has, has changed the world in 2010. I mean, titles mean nothing anymore. And that's okay. You know, head coach, president, um, hall of fame, um, champion. Those are titles. They mean nothing. It used to be your title earned, earned you respect. I'm the head coach. I'm the principal. No, what earns respect is time spent. And I think you got to do that with every kid. You got to sell it that you're going to spend time with them. You're going to get to know them. And through that, you can tell them through your experiences, what's right and wrong. You know, people act like an 18 year man now. I struggle with that because Hell, till my dad died, I was still asking him what, what house I should buy. You know, um, we don't do a good enough job. We don't think experience matters anymore. Why do you have to be 36 to be the president? Because experience matters. You know, and yet in everything else, we speed the process along so fast that I don't think people respect the journey. I don't think they respect people as much as they should. And... Uh, I try to do that, and someone would say, well, if you grab a kid or yell at a kid, that's not respecting them. I look at it the opposite. I think discipline is the greatest form of love you can show somebody. It'd be easy for me to let the kid do what he wants. That's the easy road. But if you challenge him, the only way you can change him is to spend time with him, and you've really done him a favor. During COVID, uh, I believe you were actively trying to prevent the transfer portal and the, the, the money. Um, why was that important to you? Well, I wasn't actually trying to prevent it all. I, uh, the transfer portal, um, I just believe kids are gonna make bad decisions. My biggest fear of the transfer rule, is anybody gonna learn how to fail? Because it's okay to fail. Have you ever failed? Sure. I failed a zillion times. You don't learn as much from winning as you do from losing. Because when you win, everybody's patting you on the back and you got 100,000 friends. So you're not playing. I mean, Draymond, he played five minutes a game as for Tillman, Valentine. I can name you pros that they would have transferred by now because they don't want to endure the process. And the process, sooner or later, it's going to catch up. You. Transferring is not bad. 
every place isn't for everybody. But why doesn't the NBA have total free agency? You have a five-year contract or a four-year contract. We now have total free agency. If you tell a kid to go to class, you say, well, I can go over here and not go to class. How would you feel if you had a son and you, you tried to discipline him for coming home late? And he said, well, I'll just put my name in the portal and go live with Johnny's parents next door. He lets him come home at midnight. That's kind of where we're at. Sounds stupid. There's some good things about it, but there's a lot of unintended consequences. There's so many things. But is it teaching a guy when the going gets tough, get the hell out of Dodge? To me, it is. What are the good things about it? The good things are, you know, we're not all for everyone. I do think if a coach leaves, um, the players should be able to. Maybe that would help so these ADs aren't firing us all so fast. <laughs> maybe then if they thought they were going to lose their key players, maybe they'd, they'd hang with a guy. If I was czar for the day, I, I think the transfer rule should be set out a year, you know, and, uh, and teach guys the process and how to work. And yet still, if the situation isn't right, they can move. What do you think of the money? The money, um, I think we've made some mistakes. I think there should be some stipends for the kids. I think like everything else though, it went from zero to 180. Right. Now we got, you know, kids with maybe a lot of money. And what does that usually bring? Um, some problems. I think it's gonna hurt the kids. Because remember now, in basketball, I think 1.1% of the players make it to the NBA. And I think 3.8 plays somewhere. That means 96% of the kids at the end of their four years are gonna be looking for their cameo money for happy birthdays. Nobody's gonna want it. Right. How do those kids survive? What have we taught them? I promise you this, uh, these schools do make a lot of money, but like in the Big 10, most of these schools are trying to fund 26, 28 programs and there's probably a couple of them making any money. So I worry about what's going to happen to all those non-revenue programs or Olympic programs. You know, as far as academically, the tutoring, the situations, kids, they get a lot of help to get through. And there's a lot of money spent on them. But, but do I think there should be a happy medium? 100%. But do I think it should be total free-for-all? I don't. We should have done a better job of getting ahead of it and coming up with a standard that is pretty equal for all, or otherwise it's gonna be the Hatfields and McCoys out there. It's gonna be a zoo, which it's turning into. I think the people that are making the rules are not down in the basement with us. On the NBA front, um, you were close when it came to Atlanta. I think another opportunity came with Cleveland. How much did a conversation with Raquel impact that decision? Well, the Atlanta one was big. It was embarrassing, though. Um, they had offered me a contract. I want to say it was for like a million five, and I was probably making okay. 900,000. It wasn't a great contract because that's why you get offered that. They weren't a great team and the organization at the time. And, they had called me to come back and they wanted to make me another offer. And I didn't have an agent. So I just went in there like, uh, like an idiot, to be honest with you, not knowing anything. And um, we were, they, they flew us up there and it was me, Raquel, and my wife. And 
We're walking across the arena was brand new then. First year, we're walking across the arena and the guy's saying, isn't this beautiful? And we had all the boxes on one side. Guy's name was Pete Babcock, incredible guy, just the best. And he was kind of selling us. And he said, look at this big hawk. It was in the middle. My daughter said, I don't like hawks. <laughs> she was five. I said, well, he just cost me a couple million probably, you know. But they did offer me a lot bigger contract. I loved the situation. And I think I actually chickened out a little bit, you know. I think I was just afraid to make the move. And I've had other offers. There was really only one real time that we entertained, uh, and that was the Cleveland job. If LeBron had called when the Cleveland offer came, well, that uh, was, you would, know, would that have made a difference? The ironic part is we had recruited LeBron a little bit after we won the championship. And so, you know, I went and saw him as a freshman and then realized um, he ain't going to college, you know, he was that good. And uh, so he was making his decision that next week. And I, I wasn't trying to find out what his decision was. I really wasn't, that wasn't my place. I just wanted to know if it was okay if he thought having a college coach was good because that mm -hmm. was different. And uh, so through his people, I got word that he would have been cool with that. And, you know, going or staying, if he would have been there and I know he was gonna be there, would it have made a difference? Maybe, but I, I just still think that I've been a college guy. Um, I, I love college, period. I think he ultimately listened to my daughter, Raquel, when she, she didn't want him to go. She wanted to stay here. What did she say? She's in high school and, and she's made friends and she's got family here and she's made her own way, you know? And over there, she'd be Tom Izzo's daughter. And so ultimately, I think that was like the tipping point where he decided that, all right, I'll, I'll, my family means a lot to me. If that's how they feel, then we're just gonna stay. I wonder if I'd make the same decision today with all the rules and the different things that are creating problems in our sport. That, you know, they always say to me now, well, you guys are getting like pro sports. I said, no, we're not. They have a contract and salary caps. We don't have either one. The dynamics of the game are different. You know, people are getting paid. It's their job. Uh, they want to, and I told them, I said, you know, if you help guys create value for themselves, they'll love you. Uh, but at the same time, it's different. I told him to make sure that he understood that part of it because it wasn't like coaching in college exactly. Tell about the day uh, John Paxson, uh, unsolicited, shows up at your front door. Yeah, that was an interesting day. Um, uh, Magic and Steve Smith were uh, doing the games on different TVs and they traveled together and they called me and said, you know, I think the Bulls have an interest in you. And I said, uh, wow, you know, the Bulls, I mean, that was a big organization. Now, Michael wasn't there then, but it was still a big organization. But they told me that he wanted to come right to my house. I had a little bit of notice, but knocked on the door and you open up, there's John Paxton. And uh, so we came down here and talked and, and that was great. And it just happened that Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, um, we went into the Hall of Fame together. And uh, I remember him sitting there saying, uh, how come I never hired you? And I said, well, your, con your offer wasn't very good. And he laughed. <laughs> and uh, but that, was a, that was a neat time. Your wife said a few years ago that she thought you would give the NBA a shot. Um, do you think that ship has sailed? 
I do. I do for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I think if I was 10 years younger, age might be some of it, although I feel great. But I, I'm concerned where college sports is going right now. I really am concerned about it. But uh, I guess you never say never, but I, I got so much I want to accomplish here, and especially all we've been through in these last five years, including the pandemic. I want to get Michigan State to the elitist of elite levels, both from a safety standpoint, from a student standpoint, and definitely from an athletic standpoint. The hardest thing about it is, is the relationship you have with the players on your team at the time. So it's never a really a good time to make those kind of moves. And, you know, I think Tommy being such a good person and having such respect and admiration for the players on his team made it even harder for him, you know, to do that. And there's something to be said for staying in one place and there is. Something. It's got its goods and bads. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's got its goods, uh, you know, as far as your family and moving and getting. The bads are, you know, people get used to it and they think the Final Four is on the schedule now. I just love the football weekends. I love the college atmosphere. I love the fall to roll of college. I love jogging on campus on a Saturday morning football game. Those are my favorite times, you know, and Love being involved with the students. We have a camp out. We have 1,400 tents. I sleep out with them. It's it's just the stupid college things that I really appreciate. You said in a 2014 interview, you weren't going to coach till 68 like Judd did. Certainly not 70. Um, curious your thoughts on that and what motivates you today. When I can't do or don't want to do the things, when I don't want to go on the recruiting trips, I'm sailing, man. It's going to be no no thought process. It's I'm gone. Man, we ain't letting him go nowhere. <laughs> I know. I don't know if he's getting tired. Don't look like he's getting tired, but we, we're going to keep him out there. You know, whatever we can do to keep him young, keep him going. He's 68, but uh, we, we'll say he's 57. <laughs> so we'll keep him. We, we're going we're gonna to keep him on them sidelines. We ain't letting him go nowhere. I feel great. I... I, I think we're having some good recruiting years. So uh, who knows how long? I, I don't know, Graham, to be honest with you, but it's not going to be a surprise. I mean, I'm going to know. I think I'm going to know when it's time. And I promise our fans, you, Mooch, my family, and everybody else, um, I'm not going past the time when I lose it. That's it for the sit-down portion of the interview, but the conversation continued on Michigan State's campus where Izzo walks routinely on football game days. Game day, I usually, uh, for a lot of years, I, I guess it's a tradition. I always walked the, I jogged. Yeah. Getting older now. <laughs> you know, when I looked at the Cleveland job, I, I know this will sound insane. Well, but it almost sounded like a joke when I read that in articles. That part of the reason was I swear to you, football it's the, Saturday. It's part of the reason. I just, uh, I mean, how do you beat this? You know, it's this is a gorgeous campus. Not that I need this for recruiting, because I don't think you have any seven-foot relatives you'd help me with. But it's a, it is a gorgeous campus. We always joke that we get all the moms and lose the players. <laughs> so that happens some, but. But football Saturdays here are, God, they're special. It keeps you young, keeps you energized. 
drives you crazy. It's a little <laughs> bit of all of the above. But you enjoy that interaction. Yeah, I'm a kind of a people guy. I've always been where people say to you, do you want to go somewhere and be uh, like I got a beach house. And I got people that say, well, yeah, you should put up trees and have all this privacy. And I go, man, I need to smell somebody's barbecue, you know? I need to look over and guy's having a beer and he invites me over. One of the things I feel bad about is I, I'm not a, uh, I don't read enough. So I don't think oh, I'd sit there and read you, a book. You, you aren't a book reader. I, I'm I not. I'm like uh, back to school, you know? Why read it when you can watch the movie? <laughs> <laughs> or Rodney or Dangerfield, the, or the my hero. Yeah. Do you read at like you read the the papers? Hell or? no. No. You think I'm crazy? Why would I punish myself? <laughs> Do I read the papers? I don't. There's a couple things not allowed in my house: newspaper, internet, my computer here. There's never been a email put on it. Ever. Really? Ever. No, because the way it is nowadays, uh, anything you put down is foyable. And so I was taught by an AD 20 some years ago, you know, don't do it. And uh, so if you email me, you better call me if you need me. Because <laughs> if you email me, it's probably not happening. So a couple uh, days ago, the, the president uh, yeah. resigned, third in four years. Yeah. Um, what was your reaction? You know, I honestly was a little surprised. It's been, uh, it's been different. I mean, uh, we had a president here for a long time, and uh, that got gobbled up in some of the problems. Yep. And um, so, you know, we had some different ones come and go as what happened, but uh, that's one of the reasons I told you that I'm, I wanna be here. And actually, one of the former trustees came out and said, uh, it, you're, you're the, the oh, guy yeah, to yeah. heal. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'd be a good president. I, they'd run me out of office faster than Carter got liver pills. You know, it, it'd be just like, uh, are you kidding me? No, but I mean, that's a tough a, job. He did. Way he did. I, yeah. I, I was informed of that. I didn't see it. Sparty, man, got my wedding picture taken here. Actually, at that time, 30 years ago, Sparty was in the middle of the road. And uh, the night before the Michigan, Michigan State football game, there's always people that camp out and protect it because those guys come over and try to paint it maize and blue. So we protect them. That's and, funny. And uh, we camp out here and they're there 24 hours a day. It's awesome for the whole week. By the way, Mariucci was saying that one, the, one of the items on his bucket list is to one day camp out with you. I know. He would be awesome. You know, because Mariucci's got an incredible personality and he, you know, he missed that, you know, being a pro coach, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, now that you say that, I'm going to make sure that I do that with him and, uh, I'm going to have the one with the, uh, the nice mattress in there. Though. I'll <laughs> let him go right on the ground, but we'll bring you back for that. Just for the, uh, just for the hell of it. These for me are the precious moments that are memory making things that I look at and I kind of enjoy to be honest with you. And, Usually I have to go to some of these tents if they're the big donors or big corporate tents. Right. And I usually speak or just meet some people and... Uh, but it feels like less of an obligation to do oh, yeah. more something that you Yeah, enjoy. you know, when you've been here 39 years as a GA on up, 
Um, most of those people now are friends of yours. They're, yeah. You know, some of them get a little mad when you lose, but for the most part, they're friends of yours. And uh, plus, you I get fed. Look at that. See? Uh, you know, I'll walk oh, by and they'll say, hey, give me a, hey, can I have a broth? What, what is the deal with you and chicken fingers? <laughs> uh, they make fun of me, you know. I, this is finger food, man. It's, it's quicker. Got to be quick in this job. I, I've been told that those close to you have a high level of concern that Raising Cane is opening oh, up yeah. near campus. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll get an NIL deal there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you you haven't been one to drink, right? No, you know I I uh, early in my career, a, a football coach at Michigan got in some trouble for almost doing nothing, and ended up getting fired. And I said to my wife then, um, I don't think it's worth it. So, not that I never do, but in public, um, I just. I just don't do it. You know, it's one of the things about the job that, uh, you know, you're a role model for kids and it's part of the deal. And uh, feel better in the morning, too. <laughs> Thanks for having us here. Let me just Thank you, Graham. I appreciate it. And your guys are pretty good. Most of them kept up with us. Shows that you're in good shape. I also would have to say, on or off the record, um, very impressed. You know, as a coach, preparation is more important than the actual game because if you don't prepare you don't probably get to play the game the right way um the preparation you've done on some of the things you brought up through this interview uh was second to none so congratulations to you oh thank you i really appreciate and it we'll make you a head coach someday thanks for listening to my conversation with tom izzo for more content from my interview including a look at izzo's free throw routine at practice go to youtube.com slash bensinger and as always, before you go, please leave us a rating and review. Thanks again for listening. Also wanted to give a quick shout out to Ryan Burnham, who recently gave us a five-star Apple podcast review. Really appreciate the kind words, Ryan. And for everyone else, we're hoping to shout out more Apple podcast reviewers in the future. Drop one in if you have a minute.